0: Welcome to Inside Scope, the American Gastroenterological Association podcast that will help you advance your patient care one half hour segment at a time. Join us to hear from the experts, learn new skills, and stay abreast of changing best practices. We'll be tackling a different topic each month, so make sure to subscribe and join us on our mission to improve digestive health for all.
1: Hello, my name is Christina Ha. I'm from the Mayo Clinic, Arizona, where I'm the director of the IBD Center there. And this is the second in a series of four case studies where we'll be addressing knowledge gaps in the arena of biosimilars and IBD. In the first episode, We introduce the concept of what biosimilars are and how to engage and educate all the stakeholders, including the most important stakeholder, the patient regarding biosimilars. And I'm pleased to introduce my colleague, Dr. Frank Scott, who's an associate professor in the division of gastroenterology at the University of Colorado. And also he's the PI of a very important study called the DECODE IBD study, which is investigating the consequences in delays in biologic treatment for IBD patients, which I think has particular relevance today's topic, which is navigating switches amongst the biologics as well as biosimilars. So Frank, welcome. It's glad to see you again.
0: Thanks so much for having me for a second recording here. Very exciting to talk to you about this important topic.
1: Yeah. And I think that this is actually the toughest one. And, you know, taking a step back before we delve into navigating switches amongst the biosimilars, we know it's pretty common to require at least one switch of an agent for IBD patients for a variety of reasons, non-response to treatment, adverse effects, disease progression. So how does switching from one biologic to another biologic differ when we're having a conversation between switching from a reference agent to a biosimilar?
0: That's a fantastic question. Usually, when we're switching from one biologic to another biologic that are not biosimilar to each other, we're doing so because a patient has either not had a, an ideal response or partial response or still has endoscopic or biochemical disease activity, or an individual has lost response to a given therapy or developed an antibody against a drug. The difference between that and a bio originator to biosimilar or biosimilar to biosimilar switch is that in the latter case, individuals are still receiving the same medication. It's not a transition to another medication with a potentially a different mechanism of action or mode of delivery. They're still staying within, for example, an infliximab. And this could potentially be done when individuals are clinically well, because there's been a contractual change that requires their payers requesting that they do so, or in the setting of a transition of location of care, but it's not generally clinically driven.
1: So, you know, as one of the tenets of how we manage our IBD patients, we emphasize adherence to treatment, stay on your treatment, stay on time. How does that conversation play into a patient who's switching from a reference to a biosimilar or from a biosimilar to another biosimilar, given that we're saying you have to be on your same schedule of your same medications at the same time?
0: Yeah, I think using the word the same or equivalent there is really important You need to emphasize to the patient that the transition from one biosimilar to another is that they're still receiving the same medication, that the schedule of the dosing should not change based on that switch. And it's just as important that they don't delay a dose, that they don't potentially miss a dose because of this transition, which would increase their risk of a clinical relapse or development of an antibody against the drug.
1: Yeah. And as someone who's an expert in the consequences of delays in treatment, I think it's important to really emphasize to our audience and to our patients what's involved in trying to appeal or keep somebody on an agent when it's absolutely not necessary because there are a number of steps. We have to get authorization from the insurers, which can take seven to 14 days at a minimum. We have to get the infusion center to be able to order the right drug, especially if it's not on formulary. We have to be able to maintain that the cost savings is still there to the patient because if it's not the preferred line, it actually may cost more to the patient. But also from a disease activity and maintenance of remission standpoint, what are the consequences of, I've been doing great. I want to stay on my medication. What's the big deal if I'm delayed by three to four weeks?
0: I think the potential clinical implications are significant. We know that the risk of developing an antibody against infliximab increases with delays in, in dose and as your trough approaches zero or reaches zero. So every subsequent week that you go without the medication that you should have received is a potential week where you're setting yourself up for antibody development against infliximab and then having to transition to another drug, which you may or may not respond to as well as you did to the index therapy. We also know that delays in therapy can increase your risk of having a flare, which then subsequently exposes you Mm -hmm. to an increased need for steroids, potential ER visits, hospitalizations, and increased urgent care and healthcare utilization.
1: Yeah. And I think that this is really important to emphasize because if let's say you're waiting and it's denied and now you're flaring and you don't respond to the biosimilar, please be sure to know that it's not a hundred percent because of the biosimilar, it's because your disease activity has worsened in that time period. So it's actually a form of being proactive to keep you on the therapy that has been working for you. And that's really the tenet. because as we had mentioned in our first podcast, that it's really the mechanism of action and the mode of delivery that we're preferring, not a particular brand name. But with that, you know, Frank, are there any scenarios where you would say, you know what, it's really actually not a good idea to switch? And how do you reconcile that with scenarios where it's okay? Because you have to be consistent in your approach.
0: Yeah, I fully agree. I have come to the position now where I I believe that in almost all clinical scenarios, it is okay to switch if necessary, because I do believe that the time is the most important variable here that any delays in any phase of induction or maintenance are going to be problematic. The one area where I may lobby if allowed to, to try to continue on the same agent would be during an induction phase of a the therapy, just because it can be so chaotic to switch back and forth. But there are instances where individuals are moving from different care settings, like the inpatient and ambulatory setting, where even that can't be avoided. And at the end of the day, the time of receiving that dose and making sure that you're receiving the right dose of an infliximab biosimilar or biogen or not is more important to me than delaying the second or third dose during induction to wage that sort of prior authorization war, as you discussed.
1: I completely agree because I think the stakes are the greatest in terms of immunogenicity and loss of response for the anti-TNFs when there's active disease. And I'm with you. Initially, I was just thinking, gosh, you know, we have to keep them on the same agent during induction. But that's also when the window of potentially non-response to treatment, and we know that their PK, their pharmacokinetics and the drug metabolism is greater when they have active disease. So you certainly don't want to lose the opportunity to, to use a medication that is so vital for hopefully capturing response and remission by being such a stickler for a brand name. And I think that that's really important to emphasize to the patient. And you had mentioned it during the first podcast about really having a consistent nomenclature, referring to things by infliximab and adalimumab instead of the trade name and being conditioned to do so actually helps with that discussion because then you're not married to, I have to be on the reference product because that's what my doctor told me.
0: In addition to that, also introducing to the, to, to the patient the idea that there may be switches in what brand name they're receiving up front so mm-hmm. that they are mentally sort of prepared for that as well.
1: Yeah. And so with that, you know, what's your thought on multiple switches? Because we do know that there are multiple forms of infliximab and even more forms of adalimumab that are available or will be available. So how do you handle that in your practice?
0: And this, you know, I, I currently handle multiple switches in the same exact manner that I ha- handle in an in index switch in that, you know, I emphasize to the patients and to my care team, the importance of bioequivalence here, that safety data, adverse event data are similar between therapies and that their financial experience with the drug and patient support experience should be identical. We have less data currently to support multiple switching, but the data that we do have both in IBD and other autoimmune disease states, including rheumatoid arthritis, are as reassuring as the the mono switch data that we have. And future agents as they come to market and are FDA approved require multiple switching, which provides even more robust evidence that suggests that it's okay I am seeing this more and more often in my practice. And I do think that this is going to become the standard as we use drugs like infliximab and adalimumab that have been on market long enough to have multiple biosimilars come to market as well.
1: Yeah. And you know what um, the, the, at least reassuring thing is that the data on multiple switches in IBD will actually happen organically as they're utilized more and more in clinical practice and part of it is we have to make sure that we're maintaining not only our comfort level but our confidence in the treatments that we're recommending and to that note you know we're seeing a lot of the nocebo effect for these biosimilar switches amongst our patients and i think part of it is driven by the providers not really showing the appropriate amount of evidence providing the right reassurance and that confidence. So can we talk a little bit about the nocebo effect? What is it? And how do you engage your team to really try to prevent or address the nocebo effect?
0: Yeah. So much like we have the placebo effect for clinical trials, where an individual receives a medication and may receive the active compound or a non-active compound, and some individuals still derive a benefit from the non-active compound, A nocebo effect is sort of like the inverse of that situation, wherein individuals receive a known active comparator because there's a perception that there's a difference between that and what they were receiving before. There's a recurrence of symptoms or flare of disease or psychiatric distress or increases in pain, et cetera. This has been seen across medicine. This is not necessarily something unique to biosimilars or to the IBD space, but it can be partially headed off by... Providing the appropriate education to our patients and ensuring that they have access to the data to demonstrate the equivalence between therapies, by being uh, reassuring and that we are okay with this this decision and that we think this is going to go well. That they've done well on infliximab, Remicade version, and they're going to do do well on the biosimilar of infliximab that they are about to receive, and to ensure them that even though we're switching from a bio originator to biosimilar, they're monitoring their evaluation is going to remain identical. We are still going to look at biochemical markers, do clinical assessments of their symptoms, do endoscopic evaluations as we routinely would. None of that changes because they're switching from one compound to another that are both infliximab.
1: Yeah, I completely agree. And just showing that there's that consistency and that transparency in our monitoring approach. And I will say for select groups of patients, I'm not doing this for everybody, but sometimes I'll employ a little bit of therapeutic drug monitoring yes. or a little biomarker testing before and after just to provide that reassurance. But I will say that gets a little bit challenging as we're still optimizing. So the strategy for optimizing amongst the biosimilars is exactly the same. In the first podcast, we had emphasized that the therapeutic drug monitoring and antibody infusion reactions, they're all the same as well. So before we conclude, you know, remembering that we're advocates for our patients at the bottom line and our healthcare teams actually need to ensure best practices. How do you provide not only reassurance, but factual evidence that the biosimilars are clinically equivalent amongst your stakeholders? Because realistically, I don't think we can ask all of us to reach out to every single patient prior to a switch. So what sort of resources, reassurance do you provide to the stakeholders in your team to help ensure appropriate communications to your patients?
0: I think it's important that every team member on the the medical side is aware of what biosimilars are available, that they're familiar with the various names so that when they receive requests from payers or other organizations to make a transition, that they're comfortable with that and they understand that we're comfortable with it too. Just as we mentioned sort of the confidence that we have to have in the biosimilar in relation to the biooriginator when we discuss it with our patients, we also have to express that to our medical assistant staff, to our nursing staff, to our pharmacists as well, providing them with frequent with regards to clinical trial data that shows equivalence, and also ensuring that there are things like smart phrases and dot phrases that we can share with our patients that are easy to fire off when these requests come that provide reassurance and additional information via the internet from the Crohn's and Colitis Foundation and other organizations in the AGA can be really helpful.
1: Yeah, I think having that consistent messaging is very key. And I think that as a healthcare team, each individual practice group needs to make sure that their messaging is consistent, they understand what the frequently asked questions are, and they know when to appropriately escalate the question to the next level, whether it be the provider or the PharmD, to really just ensure that the patient's questions are being sufficiently answered. Because there's a lot of great information out there, and our comfort will also and our confidence will also increase organically as this is just part of our clinical practice. I mean, biologics weren't part of our clinical practice 20 years ago, and now we're very comfortable with them. So the same thing will happen with biosimilars as long as we're prepared. And with that, you know, I'd love to thank Frank for your expertise and guidance and all of the great work you're doing to really ensure that we are prepared and can prevent delays in care for our patients living with Crohn's and colitis. And I'd also like to thank our sponsors. This podcast was supported by educational support from AnGen and Pfizer. And as Frank has mentioned, there are a lot of great resources online that are available to help you in your practice, especially through the AGA Biosimilars page for providers and patients. And please look at it at agau.gastro.org. Thanks so much. And we'll see you for episode three.
0: Thanks for listening to Inside Scope, an official AGA podcast. Make sure to subscribe to be notified as we roll out new episodes. For more GI education, visit AGA University at agau.gastro.org.